0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which Economic indicators.
0: Who knows where this is going to end up. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It's podcast time. John, do you like my my look? I think you're looking... Terribly fetching. I think it's it's by just off the five aside our lads five aside soccer team. It's your
3: Euro twenty twenty look.
0: I'm telling you, see, that's it. We're all getting we're all getting all Zidane as we get older. Zidane in your ass. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, the standard of the five aside, but six aside up in UCD, isn't quite the Euros.
3: You're bringing it down, are you? The
0: Euros is kind of spectacular, isn't it? There's been some brilliant matches, but it's it's also the sense of. You forget how brilliant football is when you take it out of that awful premiership yeah. world. You know, and you actually... Sky ruined football. Well, they did ruin football. Yeah. And, and they, well, they also made it kind of fashionable. I quite liked in the late 80s and early 90s when football was really unfashionable. Yeah. Like before the Spice Girls announced that they were into football. Do you remember that, <laughs> yeah. right? And Britpop and all that shit. <laughs> you know, when nobody talked about football. I actually remember going, I think it was in... My final year in Trinity, or maybe even the year after I left like eighty eight, eighty nine, around then, and going to you know the PAV in Trinity, you know the bar?
3: The PAV Yacht. Totally. To watch yeah.
0: to watch the FA Cup final. And there was only myself and a mate of mine and nobody else was watching it. Football really? was so unpopular. So unpopular. Really? And in the nineties it became really popular again. But yeah. well, I, I
3: actually used to go to I was a member of Fulham Football Club, you know that. You and three others apparently. <laughs> It was great when they got to the Premiership for the first time in ages. and Fleetingly. Very <laughs> fleetingly, yeah, 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 yeah. But they were at the local team. But uh, my brother, Connor tells the story of Murphy, our friend, got us two tickets to a Champions League match, Chelsea and Barcelona. And these were like gold dust. Yeah. And uh, Seth and, and Dicky got two brilliant seats and, you know, were watching. And it was brilliant. It was one of um, Messi's first games, I think. Right, and watching
0: 1957.
3: This. <laughs> but there was a brilliant goal scored, and Dickie's gone, yeah, because he's a Chelsea fan. Yeah, he turns around to look at me and I'm facing the other way, kind of contemplating the crowd. Yeah. And he
0: just said, Jesus, John, why are you at football? Well, that's when football dies, when people like you started to go. <laughs> no, I remember around that period, actually it was, it was later, it was about 1996, 97, getting tickets to see Arsenal in the final of the UEFA Cup, in Paris against, I think it was Real Zaragoza, right? I remember David Seaman, the great Arsenal keeper, yeah. who was described, I think, by
3: looks a little bit like Magnum PI. He he did, he did. He looked a bit like Paul McCulley, actually, our
0: friend. Really? Yeah. But, but yeah, he was scri- <laughs> He was he was lobbed by a guy called Naim from the halfway, right? Right, an yeah. extraordinary goal, right? But Ronaldinho, the Brazilian, yeah, uh, I think described did something similar. For Brazil against England. And again, seeing him was Love News Offline. And he described him as a whale with a ponytail, <laughs> which I thought was a great expression. Because he was so slow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about economics and the world. Indeed. And was, you know what I'm going to talk about this week, John? What has been very interesting, I have been watching. You know the way in Ireland we talk about politics and we get obsessed with British and American politics. Indeed. But actually the politics that makes most impact on Ireland, materially is German politics because what happens in Germany sets the tone for what happens in Europe. And what you've seen this week has been the unveiling of the CDU, you know, Mrs. Merkel's party's Uh main economic blueprint. And what is extraordinary is the Germans are now fighting back against everything the ECB is trying to do. So there has been, remember we've talked about this, there's been a battle at the heart of Europe between the ECB yeah. which, as I told you before, has experienced an Italian coup d'etat. Uh, yes. Starting yeah, yeah. with Draghi, yeah. but now with Lagarde. So basically, the fiscally, budgetarily incontinent people, <laughs> right? Think about incontinence and what it does to you, John. It's <laughs> no, <let's> like leakage <laughs> all the time. So you have these targets of budget deficit, then you just leak a little bit. So oh, the fiscally incontinent of France, Spain, Italy, you know, basically the Catholics, right? Right. Okay, and they they always go for more budget deficits, a little bit more spending, whatever. And then you have the Teutonic Germans who dig their heels in all the time. Why? Because you remember we talked with Eric Lonergan recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two different perceptions of money. The Germans regard money as a public good that needs to be protected by treaties. Which is why they had the Bundesbank. Which is why they could never ever spend more than they had. Which is why they regarded money as the housewife. Yeah. You know, This in in German, yeah. in German lore, there's this, there's this idea called the Swabian housewife. And Swabia is a place in southern West Germany, and she's obviously quite frugal, right? right? So the idea is always, what would the Swabian housewife do? And for years and years and years, that's been the German approach, right? Then of course they it's give a bit away. Bit like Cavan, is it? It's, yeah, it's a bit like Calvin, yeah. So, the Germans have created an establishment institution which is based on public frugality, right? However, over the years, and then they gave away their sovereignty to have the Euro, yeah, right? The Euro, a yeah. a big deal for Germany, right? They gave away the Deutschmark. And what they hoped was that we'd all turn into little Germans, mm. right? All of us who took the Euro, but yeah. that didn't happen. In, in fact we became splendidly more stereotypical. And we did all this with German money. Yeah, and when yeah. they came looking for their money back, it was all gone. Remember 2008, it's like, oh, it's all gone. So the Germans were kind of traumatized by that. And then in the last four or five years, the ECB, the institution that they set up to be a mirror image of the Bundesbank has looked and felt more like the Bank of Italy mm. than the German,
3: right?
0: Yeah. So spending money, what they call monetizing deficits, et cetera. And the Italians and the French and the Spaniards, the, the fiscally incontinent, were all very happy with this leakage. Now, the CDU have said enough, right? So their political blueprint for the election, which is what Germany's going to talk about for the whole summer, is we're going to go back to the Maastricht Treaty. The Maastricht Treaty is the treaty that said budget deficits can be no more than 60% of GDP. We though now they're about 160%. right? Uh, sorry, debt GDP ratios can be no more than 60% of GDP, right? Which ain't going to happen anywhere. Budget deficits have to be less than 3% of GDP, and there has to be this enormous move towards fiscal consolidation. So they've gone back to the orthodoxy. And the, the battle lines now are drawn, not just within Germany, but what happens in Germany impacts on the rest within Europe, where the Germans, the CDU, are saying all this pandemic spending, all your bloody MMT, all your don't be worried about the rate of interest, spend whatever you want. All this stuff. The Germans are saying, That what is-, is genug auf Deutsch. <laughs> that is enough, right? That is genug. But I was going to ask you, what, what
3: is the German view of MMT? You know, they must be looking horrors. at Biden and scratching horrors. their heads.
0: Horrors, horrors, horrors. horrors. So, so Germany is run by a cult when it comes to economics called Ordo economics, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah you that mentioned this stems from the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, when the Germans, terrified by monetary instability, most people claim that their real fear was inflation, right? From 1923. Yeah. My sense is that inflation definitely was a fear, but also was excessive deflation. Because don't forget, Adolf Hitler came to power in a period of deflation. Yeah. The myth is he came to power in inflation, in 1923. Yeah. In 1923, he was... Mooching around Munich, having his beer keller pooch, yeah. right? And writing Mein Kampf. He was a nobody. Yeah. He in, was a crap artist. Well, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Well, like, I, I he read a, horses, didn't he? Yeah. Like, well, I read a book
3: recently on Hitler in his early days, in his youth. And they went on. See, I actually think he was also perhaps a little bit Asperger's because he was incredibly focused and he couldn't take criticism at all. And he thought his art was fantastic, but everyone else would look at him and go, "That's crap," and it would drive him absolutely scatty, you know yeah. uh, and and that's when he and he's going to go off
0: and be a, and yeah. be and be a great patriot but the the background noise is always sold to people that Hitler is a product of inflation, yeah, but in actual fact hitler Hitler's popularity was a product of deflation, yeah, where the Nazis really came to power between nineteen twenty eight and nineteen thirty two Germany went into a period of rapid deflation that's when their polling went through the roof yeah and by january 1933 he was in power having come up with this fictitious coalition and, and all that sort of mm. stuff but what the Germans always wanted there was monetary stability that's why this is this is all a again them right but my point is that Germany is in for a summer of a debate between people who believe Orthodox economics is the way forward, and people who believe that unorthodox economics is the way forward. It's the difference between the economics of the CDU, which is Mrs. Merkel's party, and mm-hmm. now they're going right back to basics, and the economics of the Green Party, which is basically we need a European new Green Deal. We need to decarbonize the, the German economy. The German I mean, Germany, basically, in effect, for the last 40 years, has taken fossil fuel and turned them into cars. Yeah, that's the economic model, right? We'll burn, we'll create steel, we'll create cars, we'll basically we'll hostage ourselves and hijack ourselves, and basically lean ourselves towards the carbon economy. Mm. They have to wean themselves off that, and the economic debate is against that background. But
3: can I just and I don't want to keep going on about this or, or, or take us down a rabbit hole. But how is John? Do you
0: take us down a rabbit
3: hole <laughs> never. <laughs> but Merkel is it's the end of Merkel's
0: career. At yeah, so Merkel is on the way out. So, but the new guy coming in, is, is Armin he... Lachey, he's, well, what he's trying to do, right, he's trying to establish his own bona fides amongst the centre ground of German right. politics. And when you want to go in the centre of Germany, you have to go back to fiscal conservatism, monetary conservatism, mm. tradition, stability, don't rock the boat, steady eddy stuff. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to paint the Greens, who are his major opposition now, as fiscally loose, as a little bit too experimental, and as kind of dangerous to the right. German model. Right. So what I'm saying is we are in from a fantastically interesting summer of economic discussion in Germany. and whereas the Irish media naturally focuses on what Boris Johnson said or Joe Biden said. It's all theatre. Yeah, yeah. Because if the CDU view wins in Germany and it then percolates through to the ECB, even though the ECB is independent, Germany is still the Czech writer, we might get a rapid change in economic conditions in Europe. And the legacy of that or the implications of that is huge for lots and lots of issues. So let's talk about politics, German, Irish, European, over the next couple of minutes. Great. Imagine the
1: softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
0: So, luckily, John, we have a real expert here to talk about politics. Thank God, Jesus, thank God, Kevin Cunningham, <laughs> Kev, how are you?
2: Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. It feels like uh, I'm due to get my vaccine uh, this coming week. I think so. Yeah, pretty, pretty. Stoked That's your for first that. job, is it? Job number you one. Are but,
0: but a youth, John yeah. and I are double jobbed We're oh, yeah. out. We're out. We can actually leave. Good and the-
3: bad, as Marla would say.
0: Tell me, tell me, Kevin. Okay, I want to talk to you about politics. I want to talk to you about is the center dead? This is the idea we were talking just before the break about the fact that German the German center is back in the game. Yeah. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think the I think the center itself isn't dead. I mean, the the best example of this is probably the French regional elections, but in the case of Germany as well, uh, the Free Democratic Party is probably the party that's making the most moves. In in the polls right now, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about the Green Party in Germany doing very well, and that is quite remarkable. And you know, if the Green Party did get the chancellorship, or it would be quite remarkable. But the FDP is the one that's actually moving right now, and it's it's coming straight into third place in Germany. In the French regional elections, which can we I just saw, say
0: for an Irish audience, the FDP were the Progressive Democrats of Germany.
2: Yeah, right? if you remember
0: the Progressive Democrats. They were the sort of fiscal hawks and they were very, they were small sort of, they
2: That's used to it, call exactly. them a
0: make-way party, but they, they were quite powerful for a while because they could actually be the difference between the CDU and the CSU and or whatever. So they were like the PDs, weren't they? Are yeah, they, they were.
2: They're, they're more fiscally conservative than Angela Merkel's party, you know, so they're, they're definitely to the right there, but also kind of the liberal type vibe about them there's the french regional elections which happened only relatively recently and the results are there's only the first round that's only uh, uh, been counted but it looks like la republica has won that uh, by quite a substantial margin as well. And that's the centre right party, the old party of uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, Francois Fillon Last time we saw them. Jacques Chirac, is it? Jacques, isn't Jacques it? Chirac as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. so, and,
0: and Balladour and all these guys going back years ago. Yeah. And,
2: and, and they won by a significant margin. Not only that, but also the Socialist Party in France, which was arguably the party that people thought was gone out the back door, also did relatively well. In fact, Emmanuel Macron's party looks like it's come around fifth, close to the Green Party. Wow. Yeah, so it's, That's quite a, and a, Le Pen, a fall, isn't it? And Le Pen has fallen as well relative to recently. I mean, if you compare these results against 2015, 2015 France was a completely different country where the two parties that we we're talking about, that centre ground, actually did relatively well. But the regional elections are thought of as the real midterms in France. And if this is any indication of what's going to happen in the French presidential elections next year, it's really all up for grabs. It's it's quite unclear what way it's going to go, who might end up in the last two rounds and what potential candidates might emerge. So we've got kind of the return of the centre
0: in Europe. We've also got, for example, like, Mario Draghi is the Prime Minister of Italy. You know, a more centrist person you couldn't have.
2: Uh, in, in in Britain as well, you know, you have uh, recently there's the Chesham and Amersham by-election. You know? Yes, yeah. I enjoy a good punt on politics and by-election. Of course you do, Kev. <laughs> and I swear I did not see that one coming at all. Like, I was unbelievable because, the you know, the Liberal Democrats is led by Ed Davey, uh, the guy who I've came... I've actually never heard of him. Exactly. He came second in the previous leadership election. And I guess he was the only person left to become leader. So it's, (laughs) it's not really, you know, the, the Liberal Democrats aren't exactly a dominant force. People argue that it's something to do with HS2 because HS2 is going through the constituency. HS2 is what? Sorry, HS2 is the high speed rail going from London eventually to Manchester, but stage one goes through Birmingham. It saves, I think 20 minutes off your time from London to Birmingham and, half an hour maybe to Manchester. But it's it's very controversial because it goes through all the kind of greenfield sites of which there's relatively few in Britain because it's quite... It's quite popular. Quite, yeah. quite filled But up, it's yeah. quite
0: funny. I'll segue there. Rory Sutherland, who was on this show not so long ago, mm. was talking about the world, the difference between the world run by engineers and a world run by marketers. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the
0: HS2, is that what it's called? Yeah. He said he's a great example of a world run by engineers, so that they will spend four, five, whatever it is, billion pounds on a train that will go just slightly faster than the trains that they have, so that you will go from Manchester to St Pancreas in 26 minutes faster than you would have done. And Rory was saying what would have made the journey much more interesting was to have free Wi-Fi for everybody and the top supermodels, both male and female, in the world serving Chateau Petrus to everybody for half, for half the
2: price. Right, yeah. And
0: it's a really good thing. It's the idea of like, do people actually <laughs> really want to go any faster in this world? You know, I mean, I mean, I'm all for trains and I'm all for this, but like sometimes when engineers take over yeah. and get off on the fact that you know we could create this system that you We're will be
2: pushing the envelope.
0: Type yeah, we'll be we we will be in London twenty minutes faster. Wait, it's like, another,
2: I know there's another segue, but. Uh, there's a real divide in Britain around trains and buses, you know, how some people, there's a political and ideological divide around some people would say when they see all this kind of investment in trains, they say, well, I'm not going to benefit from that. You know, the guy in Bolton yeah. isn't going to really benefit from being able to go to a London a lot quicker because he's going into Manchester. If that, he's probably working in Bolton. You know, it's the kind of town versus urban areas. But connecting to massive urban metropolitan areas twenty minutes quicker doesn't really yeah. do much for that demographic that we've been focusing on. You know, for for the last number of years. And that's but why but
3: that seat, Amersham and Chesham. Chesham yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was from its inception was a conservative seat. Yeah,
2: and this is for the first time. The Lib Dems. And the Lib Dems are, you know, the also-round party right now. I mean, people are yeah. thinking about the rise of the Greens in the UK. That, that, I mean, the last couple of electoral cycles, the Greens have, have risen steadily in the middle of the cycle and then just been squeezed out by the larger parties because they have this first-past-the-post system, which is quite good at squeezing out small parties, basically. But uh, yeah, the Lib Dems, very surprising. But that does reflect what's happening or at least some sense of this idea of the centre ground. Maybe it's too early to write it off. I mean, the Swedish Social Democratic Party looks like they might have another election in Sweden because the, the government has collapsed partly on this uh, interest, conveniently enough, compared to here on, on a bill around housing. But, you know, who's going to win the election?
0: So tell me, I, did, I didn't know that. So they, yeah, they have it, a bill around housing saying, let's build more houses.
2: It's, it's, it's on um, uh, rent control, in fact So they wanted to actually soften the rent controls As far as I understand And the left party pulled out And the government is now collapsing But, okay. mm, but interesting. Le- the left is in the kind of far left party But the real threat to them is the moderate party, which is, again, the same So you don't
0: of. want to really be part of the moderate party, do you? It's like, what are you talking Well, I'm kind of moderate. About it. <laughs> Frankly, I'd quite like to be in the moderate party, but I think it doesn't... So, so do you think this idea, I, I come back to it, is, are we seeing the return of the centre?
2: I, I think there are... What has happened over the last couple of years is a reshaping of politics into a new dimension, you know, where there is the existence of these cultural axes. But that economic axis, it's still there. If you look at the, the most recent UK uh, local election results, the best predictor of the change of voting behaviour was around home ownership. So that's a, that's a big, important issue. But Brexit is no longer predicting these changes. It's kind of done its job. It's taken things to a certain level and now things have kind of slowed down. So, so there's areas in Britain which, have, you know, which are clearly now more conservative, which the Conservatives now are more likely to hold, but that's it. There's it kind of, it's almost like there's no more changing really. Well, so it's, so that,
0: that idea of the great big national flag waving python on the beaches, that's done. It's it, over. And it, now we settle back into something that looks and feels a little bit more like maybe five, six, seven years ago?
2: Sort of. I mean, I wouldn't say that the, the far right are gone or anything. They're kind of, they're now established as a significant force within politics, but they're not continuing to rise. I mean, in the last two or three years and in spite of, you know, in, during COVID, they, they had a clear argument in relation to kind of probably being the only parties who are very opposed to restrictions. Um, They haven't increased. They've stabilised very quickly. So it's, it's like they have their subset of the population now and it's not really going to it doesn't seem like it's growing. And in fact, as we said, it's the centre that's kind of having a little bit more of a... So, so of a, in
0: the UK, in Italy, in Germany, and in France, we're seeing more coalescing around what used to be the mainstream than the extremes. John? So can it be argued then
3: that the last four or five years has been a little bit too exciting? In politics you know with the <laughs> yeah. likes of you know even and we could take in america you know with all those trump and all the loons there and then they vote for
2: biden a more of a steady eddy. i mean a of, real moderate centrist joe biden right yeah 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 so i mean so, look there's there's clearly an appetite for the center for the moderate it's yeah. not it's not going Does to everyone cool or, the jets a little bit you know there's <laughs> appetite. you know everyone wants their little I've, lots of people like different things and clearly there's yeah. an appetite for the moderates. You know? Well,
0: I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's like, what, what have liberals ever done for us? Well, <laughs> the vote, uh, gay legislation, home ownership, uh, extraordinary, amount. every single social democratic legislation has been brought by the liberals. Yeah, You know, by liberal people, not by extremists, you know? yeah. So I guess what the Romans have done, I mean, the liberalism has created the societies that we live in yeah. and we shouldn't forget that. They, they've not been... Ex- Created by extremists, you know? they by liberals, by wishy washy centrist dads like you and me, John. That's the whole thing. <laughs> Tell us what's going on. Because we've got this we've got this bellwether in Ireland. By the way, if you're not Irish, we might just get a little bit paddy on you here and talk about a an election that's coming up in Dublin South Central, isn't it?
2: Uh, Dublin Bay South, yeah. Dublin Bay South, sorry. Yeah. Tell me, okay. God, it's really niche now. This, this is, really, yeah, 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 Very yeah. leafy, <laughs> affluent constituency with a mix of more working class areas closer towards the city. Overall, I mean, the, the, the two most popular parties in Ireland like right today are Sinn Féin and Fine Gael. And over the last year, on, on the back of the rise that Fine Gael had on the back of COVID, a kind of a COVID bounce that they had, they've kind of tried to manage reveal a politics of polls, basically, between Sinn Féin versus Fine Gael. And clearly going into this by-election, Fine Gael are definitely making um, sounds to suggest, well, if you don't vote for us, then you could have Sinn Féin. And that kind of fear effect that's working between the two. And you can under- you can see why that's a a useful tactic over that year those two parties collectively haven't actually grown in, together so that's the, interesting yeah so the the, the the extremes haven't grown in ireland which is interesting and and i have to say i didn't expect that because i thought to mm-hmm. some extent that this tactic might work and it has worked obviously in some other countries previously but it hasn't really had that impact and and in, it seems to be noisier though the extremes well, I, de- I mean, they definitely are, but the, the, the centre ground has still got that substantial, significant vote. Mm. I mean, yeah, we can talk about Sinn Féin separately. There's kind of issues around Sinn Féin which are quite interesting separately, but that middle ground hasn't really gone away. And what's interesting as well about the by-election is that we actually have a preferential voting system that, it, in effect, if you want to avoid the extreme party getting into government it isn't the case that the most effective thing to do is to vote for the opposite extreme. In fact, the most effective thing you do down your ballot is to vote for the the party closest to that extreme party, and then work your way down the ballot further away from it. So, like, right. and Irish people yeah, yeah. do
0: vote quite. quite Ar- Irish people tactically. vote very tactically. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So, I mean, it's quite it's quite possible that that sort of campaign effect might not actually have a huge impact in fact. Um,
0: and so what do you think now are the driving issues? We've talked about housing and housing is the key issue it seems but what else is going on? Um, I think Both it's, within the centre and the right and in, within the left because I think you've got very interesting ideas of what's going on within the left as well.
2: Yeah, I, I mean if I could just say one thing about the housing thing because the housing thing is quite interesting because while I've mentioned what's happening within the centre over the past year the those that are in rented accommodation are quite steadily declined in support for the governing parties. At the start of the year, it was around 39%, and then the latest polls show that they're around 22% actually support them among renters. So there's definitely a dynamic in relation to home ownership in Ireland that reflects also what I mentioned in relation to the UK, that kind of realignment around mm-hmm. homeowners and non-homeowners. But the left is quite an interesting dynamic, as you said. So within the left in Ireland... It's, it's a little bit different to other countries in that you seem to have two groups of people on the left. On the first case, you have people on the left who kind of trust the system. They believe politicians are, are quite trustworthy. They don't believe corruption is prevalent. They believe in tax and spend, which is an interesting uh, antecedent of that. Uh, and they tend to vote say, the Labour Party or the Social Democrats or um, not really people for profit, but those kind of parties and the Green Party as well. And then on the other hand, you have people on the left who don't believe politicians to be trustworthy, who believe that corruption is widespread and consequently perhaps aren't all that enamoured with the t- ideas of tax and spend because if you don't believe in the system, then how could you possibly believe with that mm-hmm. in yeah. that mechanism of, yeah. oh yeah, sure, I'll give you more taxes and I'll assume that that is going to be spent more appropriately. Even if you might be in favour of redistribution, you might not feel that the system itself... Anyway, the point is they vote for Sinn Féin So would you find the
0: more revolutionary left. left? So you've got like the evolutionary left who believe in the system and the natural pace of progress and then you have the revolutionary left who actually don't believe in the system they believe the system has to be destroyed in order to recreate is that what we're talking about
2: i mean you could i mean people for profit might go a little bit closer to that yeah definitely but i mean i'm talking about quite generally speaking if you uh there's a there's a good polling question asked in the last general election about whether people believe politicians to be trustworthy or most part, politicians to be trustworthy, mm-hmm. and by a ratio of two to one, most pe- uh, people don't believe politicians to be trustworthy. That's really so high, it's so The huge. average the average punter doesn't trust any politician. No,
0: and is, this is is one that of,
2: just an Irish thing, or is that I think yeah, no, that is that is something that exists in lots of different countries, right? As well, and yeah. I think it's a really important point because when it comes to campaigns, a lot of politicians approach campaigns as if the public trusts them, as if all right, I'm going to promise this, this and this, and they're going to believe these promises. But actually there's so much cynicism out there towards politicians that they need to, I think they kind of need to modernize their approach towards to the extent to which they're going to start promising things and whether they're not not going to happen. I wonder, is that a a legacy of drain the swamp, Trump? Well, I mean, there's, I think to be honest with you, the swamp actually gets drained far too often in my view. (laughs) Yeah, it's right, an ex- interesting point. Explain that one. Yeah, so I think there's an interesting, and this is coming from, as a practitioner, I've worked in political parties and studied how political parties operate a little bit. So what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years is that the power in a political party has moved from the kind of permanent general secretary building of staff who will kind of work. the, the Swamp? Yeah, the swamp, I guess, right? <laughs> so people who would have permanent jobs for political parties, yeah. the general secretary, they'd all have their salaries because you would have had math memberships of these parties and those would have paid for those general secretaries and those 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 HQs and stuff like that. It's moved from there to the leaders. So the the nowadays the number of staff that leaders of political parties and the politicians have is far in excess of those that, of the HQ staff. And that's where the, the staff has gone. That's where the power has gone. But the problem with that is, is that when a leader changes, as we know, like with a lot of parties, how long does a leader last? Maybe two or three years on average. Mm-hmm. The staff are all gone. So you have completely new people running every individual election over okay. and over. And there's no real legacy of understanding how do you run an election. So they seem to me to make the same mistakes over and over or at least in my own experience it's just that I, I remember there was a period where I happened to be work, I was in a UK general election a general election in Ireland general election in Northern Ireland Australian and then uh, another UK election all in the space of two years and it was all new staff running these elections every time coming up with the same sorts of things the same ideas let's, let's have our list of things we're going to promise the public and then just hope that because that's the way it's always done. And I guess if you're, if you're new to something, I guess you're always going to do it the same way that people have always done us. So you think that there's no
0: real ability in the political system because the staffers, the, the lifers who would maybe be watching trends and taking longer term views about how to evolve a political party are being elbowed out by the, we've got four years to change the world, people. Yeah. And the four years to change the world, people are running campaigns that are basically a carbon copy of the last one.
2: Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, we're going to try something completely new, different. And do you think what this Shinners, when the,
0: sort of the Shinners say, you know what, we're not even going to talk about property tax. Because this is quite interesting, because Sinn Féin yeah. is a left-wing party, and all left-wing parties should be in favour of property tax, because it's the most significant redistributive tax that there is, because yeah. rich people own property. Like, yeah. this is very simple. And poor people are poor because they don't own assets. And if they did own assets, they wouldn't be poor, right? So you tax property, and yet Sinn Féin is against it. And is that do you think because they figured out the electorate don't care about what they are being told at the hustings?
2: I think Sinn Féin is a much more efficient political party in Ireland, and it is run top-down HQ style. It's okay, m- so so it's different to the rest of them. It is, yeah. It's it's it, they have a permanent sort of establishment and pain is run differently it's run more efficiently some of the things that they do you you recognize them as being relatively more intelligent things i guess more strategic in relation to the property taxing i think whether by intention or otherwise it definitely plays up to that subset of the population that doesn't believe uh you know i mean the, the proportion of people that don't want to pay property tax fast exceeds support of the left you know there's lots of left-wing people who don't agree with the idea of paying property tax and again it's very strongly related to those perceptions of corruption and trustworthiness and all that sort of stuff those people that say i'm not going to pay this tax or i don't like the idea of paying tax if perhaps their assumption is that the money already isn't really being spent very well or the idea that that it might be uh, misused in a corrupt sense or otherwise
0: What actually worries me when it comes to the legacy of the water tax issue, right, is that so many areas of taxation, which should be policies of the left or centre-left, have now been excluded and been impossible to execute in this country. That, you know, we are back to basically a tax system that we had, we've always had, which is basically income tax and corporation tax and VAT. yeah but there's no way in which we will change behavior through the tax system because it's so hard to implement tax changes. Is that a legacy of the the water tax debacle issue, whatever you want to call it?
2: The water charges is a great example of all of this, right? Because it was a manifestation of that sort of idea of people didn't feel that their tax increases had anything to do with, you know, the system itself. I mean, a lot of the, at, at the time, a lot of the money was going into paying bondholders.
0: Yeah, sort of yeah, thing. yeah. And mm. so, and, and appropriately, people supposed to do that. Yeah. But as a general rule, the idea that you would actually introduce taxes, which would be on things like usage of water, which makes complete sense.
2: It. Yeah. I mean, to me personally, it, it makes a lot of sense to introduce all these sorts of things. Yeah.
0: But it's very difficult to introduce them
2: unless you can get that wider trust i think and i think that trust that's why i was saying that at the start that i think this trust issue is so much more important than politicians might recognize that when they go to the hustings and when they start saying i'm going to promise a 15 minute city or whatever the latest king is nonsense is right (laughs) recognize (laughs) that most people don't believe that stuff there was a great polling question done by Morak, in fact, before the last general election, which asked people the extent to which they uh, would uh, use the things that were promised to them. Uh, I, don't, I don't think the word promised was used, but the extent, election pledges, I think, were, the, the extent to which that would influence their vote. And among those that are age 18 to 34, a majority did say that the, they, would reckon, they would listen to those sorts of things. But anyone who'd been through a few elections, had no recognition for those things, had to just paid no attention. And when you get to 65 and over, they pay zero attention to any election promises at all because it's a learning process that people have. And I think it's actually, I think we've thought about the public in a very negative way, you know, mm. when I've worked in politics, we kind of think, oh, they don't, you know, they're Egypts, like if they, if only they'd read our manifesto, you know, then they'd really see yeah. that we were the guys. That we were the greatest people since sliced bread, yeah. But actually the Egypts are the, are the strategists and the political parties in some respect, because think about the manifestos for the most recent Irish general election, the twenty twenty one. one. I can't. Well, <laughs> Can was, <you? laughs> I was COVID can't. in that? No? Like, was you know, was that part of that manifesto? No, because COVID didn't exist then, right? So it's quite reasonable not to have all these promises under the assumption that other things are going to happen. I mean, the 2016 one, Brexit happened only a couple of months later and just completely yeah. ran over all these promises about tax cuts and about um what was that what's that tax that we pay uh, apart from PAYE the one, do, do you uh, USC yeah. USC that yeah. was a huge thing in the 2016 campaign yeah, and now it's probably <laughs> <laughs> who cares right yeah. uh, so the 2007 Irish general election you know, what were the promises made within two years the country was... was bankrupt. Bankrupt, yeah. So so, um, I I understand, like, the more you go through these elections, the more you hear people saying, right, here's my 20-year plan for what's going to happen to the Irish economy. (laughs) It's just a complete nonsense.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. I've always said that economists, anybody who tells you what's going to happen in 20 years, tell me what's going to happen in 20 weeks. Yeah, yeah. That's a much more accurate and demanding forecast Mm. than, you you know, you see these books, The World in 2050... I don't care. Like, it's, yeah, it's all spoofy. No, but
3: actually, just on that point, though, uh, and again, another little aside, oh. you, know, you have to look in 20-year terms when it comes to climate change and the Green New Deal and all those yeah. kind of stuff. So you have to.
0: No, but I'm just saying is that the easiest forecast to make is the one that's really far away.
3: Yeah. Well, the true, hardest true. forecast no, I guess, to make I get is the point.
0: one that's actually in the next couple of months. So before we go, we have this by-election. It's going to be a referendum on the government. You know what's coming. Yeah, on, I, you see, you? Only when you <laughs> said forecast, I was
2: like, oh, Jesus. I yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, no,
0: sure. no, but no, but like you, you were saying that you you quite like a tipple on the on the politics think, and, and whatever. Uh, yeah. How do you think it's going to fall? And do you think there could be any surprises? And do you think it will matter a damn by the first of August? Will we care what happened?
2: Well, I'd say we probably won't care. To be honest with you, to answer that last one, but by elections are. Really hard. I mean, this is the Lib Dem Mm by-election was also particularly difficult. And one of the reasons why things could be more difficult in by-elections is when turnout is low. The lower the turnout, and this is a really good rule for elections, is the lower the turnout, the more wrong the polls are likely to be. And there's no polls at the minute for this particular by-election. But the reason for that is because the volatility starts to emerge because it's not just about what does the public think, but it's who is more Motivated to vote? Who actually yeah. wants it more? And we've never been able to try to measure that. So I'm, I'm running around the houses trying to avoid answering the question. So I will admit, right, <laughs> who I have betted on in this by election, right? So at the start of it, I'll give you some of the candidates Are James Gagan is the Fine Gael candidate, uh, Ivana Bachik is the Labour candidate, Lynn Boylan is the Sinn Féin candidate. So at the start of this, I'm only mentioning them. There's, there's many more, but I'm mentioning them three because I think they're probably the three that are the most likely to win. Um, there's the Green candidate as well, and there's a the Social Democrat candidate. But I don't think they have as much of a chance. I did put uh when James Gagan was on a three to one, I did put money on him then, and then he went in, and then I saw Vanabatich's odds went out to four to one. I thought she's actually good odds at that, so I put money on her. <laughs> And now I'm looking at the odds. So I've, this is, I've <laughs> I made, I made a mess of this one, right? Because Lynn Boylan does have a good chance here as well. But that all depends on her being able to turn in her vote. Sinn Féin have a much better party op- operation in relation to GOTV. I don't think any other political party in Ireland is at the same level of play as they are. That is in terms of identifying your voters and on the day, turning those people out and only contacting those people on the day tell them to vote so
0: saying, look, we have we know we have 5,000 yeah. people who can swing this for us who will actually turn up and you and bash on every single and one everything, of single and you
2: get them all out and it. you say oh today's polling day and the reason why that's important is because there's been so many academic papers on campaign effects and, and what you can do in campaigns but that's the only thing that we know for certain has an impact To that, knock on the door yeah uh, to remind to remind your own personal voter that it is polling day it increases their chances of voting by uh, about eight percent on average, and there's been hundreds of studies on this thing.
0: Kev, before we go, can I just ask you about your your trade, the polling oh, trade? Yeah. Okay, disgrace. And no, no, listen, <laughs> listen. As an economist, I cannot lecture anywhere because we are, have hardly covered ourselves in glory. This podcast, notwithstanding, clearly yeah, well, of course, <laughs> everything is great. Uh, but uh, over the years, we, when we've chatted, we've chatted uh, about a trade on the defensive. Yeah. You know that has made some big errors on some of the very big calls uh, for a variety of statistical reasons and whatever. How do you think or where do you think the polling game is at the moment?
2: Well, there's I mean there's a there's a move from face-to-face to online. So I guess today online polling is a lot better than it used to be because we have smartphones now. So there used to be a problem where over 65s were a particular area that people didn't uh, have smartphones and or didn't have computers and stuff like that so you couldn't really I mean particularly the one demographic that was impossible to get was the old Fianna Fáil rural low. like you know yeah not really someone who Didn't necessarily have a third level, but kind of. But always turned up to vote. These people, but absolutely always always turned up to vote. vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one of actually one of the variables that I include in all my polling is religious adherence because that's a fantastic predictor of someone's likely to to vote. Yeah, because someone who's a weekly mass goer is much more likely to vote, and sometimes they're the types of people that you miss in public opinion polling because they might be a little bit more reticent about giving their opinions and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, Uh, but uh, it's moving to online. And one of the differences there is now it's a game of stats. So whether you're using propensity score matching and weighting and all these kind of fancy ways of trying to make sure and measure the polls to make sure that those, those numbers are represented. Because door knocking uh, actually... Perform particularly badly in the Brexit referendum and that's why in the UK they don't do much face-to-face anymore. It's all online and they're all talking, they all kind of work quite collegiately in fact over there in relation to trying to figure out all the different problems of online polling and how to kind of resolve all those things. So I think it is going online. It's just, uh, it's just uh, it's trickier. It's not as straightforward as here's a thousand people. It's there's a lot more detail and how exactly are they getting how exactly are they kinda of weighting these things and stuff.
0: Now, just to conclude, if we are right that the center shouldn't be written off. Oh yeah. And it may well come back and there's evidence that's coming back, and that evidence is again a massive, massive cleavage between the com- the commentariat now who are all up in arms about the extremes and yeah. the fact that the actual punter themselves might be quite chilled about things, right? If we are right that the centre comes back, what does it mean for Brexit, Scottish nationalism, all those big isms that are going on in the UK, which are bigger than our isms right now?
2: Wow, that's a huge question. Always oh, um,
0: the way to go out in the big question.
2: Yeah, um, I, I mean... Scottish nationalism is probably the first one and I think that I mean this is my my own personal view on some of these things like a United Ireland and Scottish independence
0: they're they're, they're not far away from each other I'm much
2: less likely to believe that either are going to happen in a in the short period
0: that's interesting yeah
2: I don't I think Scottish independence is much harder because Britain's outside the European Union I mean all those debates they had Mm. around what happens are going to be just flipped right back on that campaign whenever it happens and Irish unity I think that's I think if you look at the polling numbers while it has increased support for it it's only increased within the within a kind of a subset of the population there's still a very large middle ground very large soft unionist vote demographically, people talk about how the demographic changes are happening there and sure, there's almost 50-50 on Catholics and and Protestants, but it's actually the Catholics that aren't as in favour of United Ireland. I mean, it's only a subset of them are actually in favour of it. To convince all the rest to to change that, especially when Catholics are becoming much wealthier in the North, uh, I think might be more difficult than it might seem. Um, And I think the disruption that it would require, uh, the prospect of um, violence not just in Northern Ireland but also being brought down onto this part which has happened every time this question has actually arisen mm-hmm. uh, is quite significant uh, and I think our support down here as well isn't even as locked on I mean I did a poll only the weekend 51% were in favour of United Ireland it's about 15 or 20% undecided and a good 30% uh, were opposed to it I don't think that would survive any prospect of violence at all, either here. So I take a much more cautious view of the prospect of United Ireland. Um, so I, I, that's what I think. I that's no, it's very interesting. Program. I think
0: it's a really it's a really good place to end this podcast because if the centre is coming back, then the nuance, the texture, the subtleties, the ambiguities come back into play, mm. and the you know it's as uh, they say in India in the dark all cats are grey and we all live in the grey so let's leave it there to all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us, we couldn't do this without your support It means a huge amount to us also all your feedback, your suggestions your comments our comments to you, our replies to you really is the essence of the whole thing, so again thank you very much and for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.